Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Kisan Patel is the founder and CEO of M&A Science with a passion to drive the M&A industry forward. He was an M&A advisor for 10 years in which he sold larger companies such as commercial banks and hotel chains. In 2012, he noticed teams lacked efficient technology to manage deals and created DealRoom, an M&A lifecycle management platform. In 2016, he started the M&A Science Podcast, devoting his time to creating a platform where all the best practitioners could share their best practices and lessons learned from real-life deals. Kisan uh, then created the M&A Science Academy in 2020 to offer step-by-step training to those looking to master M&A, featuring courses created by top-level practitioners. Through developing technology, educational content, and industry training, Kisan aims to bring better practices to an industry with growing market pressures, transaction values, and competition. That is that is for sure. Kisan, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, so folks, listen by by you know by the bio, there's no question as to why I'm having Kisan on as a guest. Obviously, you know we talk about all types of deals, but M and A is you know certainly certainly one of them, and this is you know going to be an interesting take. Um, before we get into a little bit more about exactly what you do and your company do and, and the lessons you've learned and the deal experience, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm sure running an M&A science technology company was not on the list back then, but you tell me if I was wrong. I wasn't too far. I remember I wanted to build cars and I just, uh-huh. I wanted to, you know, I was thinking, you know, 20 years from now, it's going to be so different. We're going to have cars that could fly. So I used to sit there and draw these cars with like rocket boosters and lasers and things of that sort. And then draw them out and I'd put a price on it. That was always in the millions and billions. I remember my dad, was about 10 years old, my dad's like, something's wrong with this kid. He's always keeps talking about things and his millions and billions. So, uh, you know, on our platform, when we get some of these deals closed, last year we had a 2.6 billion IPO SPAC deal, the Goldman Sachs that Miriam ran, and then Emerson did $11 billion acquisition. I send it to my dad and it's like, dad, in the billions. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I wasn't just a, a dreamer kid that, uh, you know, that's, a, that's phenomenal. So, so always, always an interest in innovation and technology and, and, and that kind of stuff. Huh? Yeah, I was fortunate. My dad kept the house and the computer at a pretty early age. So I, I yeah. picked up on it, but then I, I lost interest in it probably around 16. Then when I got into the business field, I want to say uh, around 21, 22, I got back interested in again as an early adopter of a, uh, running campaigns and things of that sort online. One other question looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something when you were a kid, early in your career, whatever comes to mind that was an early deal. You know, I remember trading cards, but you're not really exchanging it for cash. I think the first thing I started exchanging for cash was when I was 13. I 
my first business was a tobacco shop from my locker in junior high school, <laughs> which I would pedal cigarettes, chewing tobacco and cigars. I think that's the, the first deal <laughs> was uh, running that little business. <laughs> I love it. Well, I, they, uh, listen, I was a similar kid. I had businesses when I was young. I was always, I was always hustling. And uh, so uh, I lo always love to hear those stories. Um, so listen, obviously I covered it at a high level in your bio, but really, can you drill down and tell folks so, so that they understand really exactly, you know, what you do? Our audience is some very sophisticated M&A folks, some folks who are really, you know, learning the deal space. So why is there even a need for what you provide and, you know, and, and what exactly is it that you provide? Yeah, I mean, I can probably run through a quick little origination story because today we have a focus on corporate M&A. Most yeah. of our clients are 1 billion plus market cap companies that typically do three or more acquisitions a year. Yep. And getting there, I, I came from an advisory practice doing small stuff. We did a lot of five to $20 million lower middle market um, or even lower part of lower middle market <laughs> transactions right. for hospitality, small financial institutions like community banks. But it was that experience that gave me exposure to these deals get tough to manage. A lot of moving parts when you're running a bunch of processes at once. It's complex. And I wanted to get into tech. I got involved with the startup. I was managing these software engineers, trying to build a product. What intrigued me in that experience was the way these software engineers were using these project management tools to manage building software. Mm. I kept thinking, why don't we have something like this for M&A? It would have made it so much easier. And with that inspiration in 2012, we started a company called DealRoom. And the original goal of Deal Room was just making the diligence process easier for advisors. But it's a lot of assumptions and you realize that it, uh, it was a tough market. It wasn't a market that was hungry for innovation. And most yeah. of the time, deal guys are out, they get, they're focused on getting the deals and then they kind of pass it off to a team of junior bankers that that's their job to execute it where they're miserable, the culture isn't great, they wanna look for a job on the buy side and it was a tough sale. In the years coming after found our early adopters were actually corporates that they were highly incentivized to make their process more efficient and we took that same type of product for diligence management and it continued to evolve we had a really good feedback loop listen to the customers kept identifying problems find ways to solve it. and the product itself became diligence management integration management then pipeline management and evolved into a full lifecycle management solution but I think the thing that gave us a bit of a twist was in that journey, we started realizing that these corporates had all a very distinctly different way of looking at M&A. And that concluded to this more of a realization that there's this bigger underpinning problem in the industry, Corey, that the industry itself was extremely siloed and disconnected, lacking yeah. standardization and best practices. Yes. So that was in mind. And then a friend of mine was like, hey, man, and my buddy Andy's like, you got to do a podcast. And I was like, well, what the hell's a podcast? <laughs> go get, get after me about it. Let <laughs> me actually go to a podcast conference, which was fun. I started networking with all these other podcasters. And I thought, this is interesting. Why don't we, what we ended up doing is taking the idea of leveraging a podcast to enable practitioners to share lessons learned so we can start documenting what are actually best practice, what are proven techniques in the industry. Hence the science of M&A. Yes. Um, that evolved into a full media business we didn't expect. It turned into, a, I think to date, 350 published blogs, eBooks, two published books, one of which was pretty notable. Uh, it gets us in a lot of 
speaking engagements and indoors of corporations, but it's a book we published called Agile M&A that was based on case studies with Google and Malassian and specifically how they utilize agile techniques stemming from the engineering culture, applied it to M&A with great success. Uh, we published as a framework with the goal of helping other organizations modernize their, their M&A management approach. Um, and that's where the business has really evolved to. It's unique because it's a hybrid of educational products built around standardizing or adopting best practices and the technology that we evolve around those best practices. And we provide this as a, a total solution for these larger corporates that uh, tend to have a lot of complexities when they do M&A. I think with that, the big component of the complexity is integration. You know, when you come, you acquire the business and you have a lot of things that need to get done to capture the intended value of the business. That's where things really get challenging. Let's break this out a little bit. And also, um, you know, even though obviously these problems get magnified and, and they're more significant and, and a solution applies to larger companies that do multiple deals, a lot of the underlying issues, whether it's integration, right, whether it's due diligence, whether it's whatever, apply to every M&A deal, no matter what size they are, just at different scale, right? So, you know, it's a fascinating journey because, you know, you start out with, uh, you know, listen to folks who are less familiar with this stuff. The basic starting point is, hey, how do we gather all the data and or have a place where all the due diligence items can go in a way that's organized and that we can, right, that we can figure out what we're reviewing, right? I mean, that was, you know, Kisa was talking about in the very beginning. And to move from that to a place where, you know, moving to best practices that go across everything is a phenomenal evolution. You know, let's talk about what, what are the, some of those best practices that could apply across the whole M&A spectrum or the other way, I guess it's, it's the same, the other side of the coin is what, what problems were there, right? What were people not doing well uh, that you, you know, your solution has helped them solve? I'll try to roll this up into a pretty broad theme that we've seen with working with about a hundred of these corporations. The problem is the old way of doing things, this financial approach, this finance focused M&A approach. Yes. You spend a lot of your emphasis on building a financial model to create this business case on doing the deal. Convince the board, pull the trigger, go do it. Then after that, you're typically trying to execute a um, series of templates, checklists, playbooks uh, on the deal. The old days, this would work pretty good. If you're buying some factories and some hard assets, today you're buying a hot tech startup because they got some sexy technology that you want to incorporate and create some new capabilities for your organization and your sales team to cross-sell to their uh, customers. And that's, that's a more complex. You got a lot of people, you know, you, you got to really align people. And when we see this approach applied, it tends to break things. People, um, there's a big disconnect. You know, you do this whole exercise of diligence to get to the deal to close. And there's a handoff to go integrate the company. They take that tactical approach. People don't like all this change to begin with. So all of a sudden you're kind of forcing it. It doesn't keep that person in mind of what that change is impacting to each individual. They get frustrated. Uh, eventually to the point where you get pissed off, unhappy people that quit their job and take a lot of value with them. So that, that's where there's this shift we've seen in the past five years, this great emphasis on moving towards a people-focused M&A approach. We'll, we'll go run through a couple of the elements. I would say starting off is having clarity on what the end state is, right? We, we have a strategy, this is why we're buying the company. There's specific drivers there. We're buying it for their technology. We're buying it for their engineering team. Uh, their capabilities, we're expanding market, really, really keeping that clear and 
distilling it down to what that's going to look like when everything's said and done and these organizations come together uh, and bringing that, that vision of that end state to the very front end of the process to mm-hmm. align between the executives of both companies. There's usually a person that's going to take ownership of executing the resources to achieve that end state. It's often yes. like an inter- integration leader, manager. They should be up there too. <laughs> that vision should be up there. And uh, what they should help coordinate is creating an outline of what a go-to-market is going to look like. What's that going to look like? And it should be very customer-centric. Each respected organization exists to serve their customers. But when that comes together, can we be mindful of what that customer journey is going to look like? How are we delivering more and better value to the customer? When that happens around that time, executives from both sides should spend time to understand the values of each organization. It's understanding the values that allows you to understand the culture because these values pretty broad terms, but then there's things that stem off of it that are really specific to each respected organization's culture, leadership approach, how they make decisions, problem solve. And that's where you, you get a good sense of what are some of these differences that could be complementary, could be contrasting, maybe you need to sort of think about how you're actually going to integrate the companies. Maybe it's doesn't need to be a full integration because that's not going to come together well. You may have some really stark differences that raise some concerns and even potentially conclude to not move forward with the deal. You know, that's the the biggest threat in M&A is when you begin to people problems. You get some real, we've seen that in history. We've seen some large deals where culture, the fabled uh, Daimler-Chrysler, you know, deal, the stuff just kind of blows up when you really don't think that stuff through. Um, So culture is a big piece. I think when we talk about that agile, the management approach is being highly iterative. Like this is the opposite of that plan approach, right? Here's the checklist. Here's the playbooks. It's more about having an approach where you're responding to the changes that you happen. When you're early in any deal, you don't have a lot of information. You go through diligence and even afterwards, you just get more and more information. Yes. Can you act on that information in a very responsive way? So as you get it, you're identifying the risk, you're figuring out how you can mitigate it. You're getting information in diligence that allow you to plan for integration. Are you iteratively updating that integration plan? Because that go-to-market should evolve into this work stream that runs in parallel to diligence so that the time you close, you really have a comprehensive integration plan that's ready to execute. Uh, And that same behavior can be applied in integration as well to be iterative you may discover information after you close the deal that may warrant you to update your plans and you got to keep with that. Yeah. One of the things that means, and I've seen, you know, I think you're applying and I think we've both seen this trend is that there are other key players in the organization that need to be brought in earlier than maybe they used to be under the old approach, right? You know, on the old approach, the financial model made sense. We're going to put this together. And, you know, to put it in an extreme is almost like, all right, the operations people, the integration people, the tech people, the HR people, whatever, they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out, right, you know, afterwards, right, you know, the, the, the marketing and sales people. And, you know, I think that's definitely been, you know, the evolution of saying, oh, no, 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 we need to get these other inputs and get people involved earlier than, than we used to, right? Uh, you're seeing that as well. The integration thinking and planning is what's really getting pushed up much, much earlier. Yeah. In fact, when you have functional leads, they're very focused on doing diligence and it's tough. A lot of organizations are using shared resources, so they're busy running a day job. Even getting them to put the consideration as they're doing diligence of what this is going to look like if we close, when we close, how we're going to actually integrate it. A lot more considerations about integration upfront, starting to problem solve those things. 
I, I would add there's, I, I've seen it definitely with software companies, this expanded transparency. And, you know, there's obviously some safeguards you got to have in place, you know, until you really get things done. But we're seeing more and more of this level of transparency that allows people to get a sense of what's happening, why is it happening. Um, so it allows you to align around the goals of the deal. There's this element of reverse diligence where if I'm, I'm buying your company, Corey, and I'm obviously as a buyer, we tend to drive the process, but yeah. at that, during that process, can I help you understand us? Can I help you understand our different business lines, where your business is actually going to fit in and really talk through like, this is why there's a good strategy. This is where we're going to need your help to make this successful and get, start getting that alignment there. That's, that's really important. I, I think people can look at the friction that happens. It's always when you don't communicate things. And if you don't, that people don't like, people can handle bad news pretty well. Yeah. You know, if you're a friend, it's like, look, we're going to lay you off, Corey. We're going to buy this company and in six months, your job's going to be eliminated. But we kind of need you there <laughs> to get to where we want to go. We're going to compensate the hell out of you for doing it. You know, the right. work to help us get there. And we're going to help you. You know, we actually have a bunch of roles internally that we can you know, see if would be a fit for you. And if not, we'd be happy to even support your role in a different organization. Yeah, we're going to pay for an outsource, you know, whatever, you know, somebody to help outsource you to find find, find you something else or whatever. And it, it's interesting, Kiso, because you're right. I mean, there used to be, you know, there's always this tension, right? Because, you know, and it used to be much more so, well, we got to keep the soup close to the vest. We can't, you know, there's only need to know people. And, you know, and the thinking was, well, and listen, and there's still a legitimate conversation, especially on the seller side about not in certain situations, not letting it know your company's in play, right? Until you want in the marketplace, right? And obviously, if you tell more internal people, there's always risk of it leaking out. So I'm not saying there's not still some legitimate reason, but it used to be this assumption, right? That, oh, if we let employees know they, they're not going to be able to handle the uncertainty and we're going to, you know, we risk losing people. And so we're going to wait till the last minute. And, you know, you're challenging that assumption. And I think I agree with that. And the market has shown that that's, you know, yes, there's still some balancing to do, but the way that the balancing has been done has, has shifted over time in a way that I think, you know, makes sense. And listen, frankly, some companies have learned that, well, if, if you are going to lose somebody, yeah, why not take that proactive approach and, and really incentivize them to stay for the period you need them as, as opposed to, uh, you know, um, not telling them and, and, and having them leave two months into the six month period. And now you're, now you got a problem, right? Big time, big time. That's, that's all about that at the end of the day, getting stakeholders aligned, prior, focused on prioritizations, making it really clear what those goals are. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So what are some of the other things that you saw that maybe, you know, have evolved or that folks are making mistakes on or that you guys help solve for? Anything else that comes to mind? That's, uh, I think the financial model, like validating it, a lot of times you just get pure number crunchers on there and they're going to, they, anybody can tweak a model to a point where somebody will say, okay, this looks good. Right. Uh, you, you know, you got a, you got a line that goes up and to the right. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not that complicated. Um, 
but to really make it realistic because that you don't want to go through this journey and you have a team that's responsible for executing to deliver on that financial model that isn't bought in where they're just looking at it like there's no way in heck we're going to be able to achieve this right and then that discouragement isn't helpful. That's not where you're going to create a productive team that's ambitious and chasing lofty goals and they're confident about it. No, you sort of set a, a not a great tone from the beginning because expectations were off. I think there's a there's um, validation. If you can identify who those stakeholders are that are actually going to be executing against that model, get them involved, help get their input and to validate it. I, I think that's the thing. Those Those models tend to be pretty live that you should update them as you go through the process and continue to validate those assumptions that you have. Uh, that's probably a big thing. We've just seen more of that where people are taking a little different approach. They're really trying to be more realistic as opposed to just being deal people to get the deal done. That's, and that's great. I mean, I think definitely increases the chances, you know, of success, uh, you know, there. And, and listen, I think one of the benefits of some of these high profile mergers that didn't work out is that it, gave pause, right, to some folks to say, oh, wait a second, you know, like, why did these things go bad and 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 what can we learn from it, right? I mean, there's certainly been many high profile uh, mergers that have not uh, that have not played out. I, I think it's interesting because it's come in some circles in the industry you're, or people are uh, at least touching the industry, you know, now maybe have gone the other way to say, oh, there's, there's such a high percentage of, of, of mergers in M&A that, does, that doesn't work out that maybe it's not the right way to go. And I think that's stupid as well, because there is a right way to do it. And there's so many, you know, I mean, the statistics on companies that have grown through M&A, uh, you know, through deals and the, the level of growth compared to organic growth is so compelling that if you do it right, it really makes sense. But, you know, uh, so people get scared away by the, the horror stories. But I think the, the definition of failure is very vague in the industry because yeah. we always put this high percentage on it. And if you really dig in to understand the definition of failure, it always goes back against that original financial model, their investment thesis that they have for the deal. Right. And if you really look and reflect with these, particularly the corporate practitioners, they tend to get the value. It just took longer. Right. So was it technically a failure? It didn't blow up and the company went to zero. It just took longer for them to get the intended value. Right. Which is why there's an emphasis on how well you can execute on integration to deliver on that value. And that's where we're shifting that focus to the people, right? You got motivated, happy people. They're going to chase some big lofty goals. You got some confused, frustrated, angry people. They're going to blow up and probably quit. Yeah. So it, you know, that's where your focus needs to be. Um, and that's where it ultimately determines the, the success and, and how well you can do that. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, most of the time the, the failure isn't a total fail. It's just, it took longer. You know, you expected to capture this much value in one year and it took 18 months. Okay. Is it a, according to most consulting firms, that's a failure. Right. So, you know, there, there is, I, I think you got to put a lot of consideration in the risks that you're taking on each deal individually. If you start off doing small acquisitions, it's probably a good area to start so you can overcome the learning curve and then understand your risk tolerance and build your competency and progress from there. If you go to your first deal and you're highly leveraged, you're buying a company four times larger than yours, you know, you're kind of putting yourself out there. It's a hard way. It could be some possible hard, hard lessons to learn doing it that way. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So talk us a little bit, I'm interested in, uh, you know, it's, I love the way you said it, where, uh, you know, you've developed this 
media, right? You know, company that was totally unanticipated and you might've done that more organically than through deals, but I'm always, I always love the, um, you know, the entrepreneurial journey, right? Because, uh, you know, we, I, I love this concept called strategic planning and action, which I learned back in my home project days, which is because, because this concept of, you know, we can plan, 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 plan all we want. And then some people plan and never get on the court. Some people totally uh, are reckless, you know, it's sort of like what you were saying about the iterative process, even in deals, you know, and to learn and adjust. You know, I believe that's what we do as entrepreneurs. And 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 sometimes if we're smart enough, our clients or the industry or whatever takes us in a direction and we recognize those opportunities and go, even if it wasn't on the plan. And it sounds like, you know, just the way you explained it. So, I, you know, yeah. So talk about this sort of journey uh, of becoming a maybe a somewhat unexpected media, you know. Company. Yeah, you know, it's... um. Our approach to problem solving, it's always been there. It's always been, you know, we originally took a product out to market that didn't work out. We went back to the drawing board and said, let's just talk to the people. Let's understand their problem really, really well. Yeah. If we understand their problem better, we can build a better solution. And we did that. We really took this objective, unbiased view and it allowed us to understand exactly where in the MA process we should focus on problem solving, built a better solution. We kept that same approach. What's the other problem? What's the problem with integration and build solutions for that? Uh, with the podcast, it turned into that. It was like, it was a problem. It was just the stand practices aren't there. Well, let's crowdsource it. Let's interview a bunch of people and identify what actually works. We saw the problem there. And people want to know like practical how-tos, really step-by-step. -step. Like, well, that's getting a little more granular than what the, we do on the podcast, but we can get some folks to teach it. We have this big network. We started this online academy program to provide a solution for those that really want some templates and practical how-tos. And then um, it's just we have the big demand we see right now with uh, search people in CorpDev are hiring like crazy and they're yeah. strapped to find folks. A lot of them are looking for that analyst associate banking type of background. Well, we got a partnership with a, a firm now that uh, is going to take care of that. We can provide them leads and it turns in, even we're not offering the, this, but we have the right to, if we want to grow it, we can move that in-house. But right now we just lead gen for this company and it's, some great terms uh, when they're successful. You know, we, I'm in Scottsdale and we were, had a monthly meeting last month and the question was, when are we gonna start doing in-person events again? And I, I, I had a pretty passive response where it's like, you know, I don't think we should be the first in the pool on this one. Why don't we wait till the industry comes around and check it out from there. I'm in Scottsdale, we had a client meeting, we have one important partnership meetings. One of my sellers is here. Another one said, I want to come out for the important meeting. I'm working on the deal. So, okay, make your time useful though. Why don't you find some people you can go meet with? And I was like, you know what? Let's just hit up the Corp Dev folks in Scottsdale and see if we can invite them to a happy hour. Uh, and it was good attendance. We had half a dozen people show up and it was like, hey, this is actually good. You know, this market, there isn't a lot of Corp Dev people to begin with. Uh, this is kind of cool. We can actually get back and start doing in-person events. I think this really validates it. But it wasn't, it was just doing that test. If you can do something and try it where it's relatively inexpensive, what does it cost us just to send a, an email and LinkedIn messages out to sure. people we filter by search? And like, if they don't show up, we, you know, we'll have some fun anyways. It doesn't matter. And uh, it, it worked out. So I think that's always been the approach where you, you can, can you identify that little problem, find a real basic way of, of validating a solution for it. And then even that on small scale, now we're talking about, you know, Park City, ski trip, uh, golf tournament in, uh, in California, you know, in terms of doing some big flagship events for next year. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's what it is. It's, we, we tend to forget, we get fixated on this, the model. You know, the model, I love the model, but I hate the model. 
because it's always fixated on this bottom line net income, right? Yeah, yeah. And but that that we forget is that's the outcome. The money you generate is the outcome. Yeah. The important thing to stay focused on is your capability to create value. Yes. I think we lose sight of that, and that's where it's very much about problem solving. And we're excited about these large corporations because they do have very complex problems to solve. Uh, the bigger the organization, the more complex things get. And I think for us, we want to strive to build our capabilities around that. We want to constantly want to learn. We want to turn things into frameworks, templates, add some functionality in software to continuously problem solve. And then knowing your market too. You know, I think as a company, we evolved from when we started with the boutique advisory practices, started doing corporates in general, roll-ups, and now we're more focused on, on typically the billion plus market cap companies. Um, so knowing your market, that was the other component, but yeah, I'm problem solving. Yeah. I mean, I love that problem solving approach because it's really, when you identify a problem, right? People, you don't have to sell them too hard, right? They, they, they you just have to, you know, especially when you found a solution for it. And I also love the fact, you know, you talked about that from the recruiting area that you've quote unquote partnered with, right? Uh, you don't have to reveal anything, you know, onto in terms of details, but you know, it sounds like you have some sort of arrangement where you get paid when you, you know, when you, to send them, uh, you know, clients, and that they can they can provide that solution. You know, that's one of the things I always talk about. You know, we don't only talk about M and A on this show. We talk about strategic alliances and joint ventures and mark, you know, marketing arrangements and affiliate deals and all this stuff. Because you know, there's also all kinds of opportunities in that. And um, and I love uh, you know a lot of people pass those opportunities by. Right? You could you could have just referred people and it was told them you don't do that. Right? But there was something that drove you to say, hey. This is a problem. Our clients need a solution for it. And um, you said, hey, who, who can we partner with? And that's a question I often ask my clients to say, hey, who else out there? You know, can you do? And when we say partner, we're using that term loosely. That could be structured in any given way, whether it's a two business partnership or just a contractual relationship, some sort of joint venture. So you saw that opportunity and took it. Yeah, I think for us, it was a buy versus build uh, sort of analysis, too, because yeah. we knew the market has a demand now. But if we organically try to build this, is that demand going to be there in a year or two years? Well, right. why don't we just go find a partner so we can get to market quicker and show them that we have this rather large network of corporate entities that are hungry to, to hire and, and allow them to get that resource offering in front of them. Um, so that was a big thing because what, what it took a, a lot longer, we were able to get out to market in about six weeks. Yeah, which is which is amazing, right? And. And they have that built-in expertise. You don't have to build that. You have you have the the clients that have the need. Uh, you know, it's yeah. I mean, I'm you know, it's interesting. I can't talk about it now because it's not we're very early stage, whatever. But I get approached a lot myself on various things. Certainly, we do a lot in the financial services space, not our only sector, but you know, I have very extensive connections in the especially in wealth management and that kind of stuff. And you know, people want access, want my access all the time, right? I work with hundreds and hundreds of firms in that space. And most of the time it's to pitch something that, you know, whatever, it's not, it's just another product or a solution out there. And I've got to be very careful with the kind of relationships I have with my clients. I don't, I don't get involved in that. You know, obviously I become aware of resources, but there's this particular thing that we're looking at that is solves a real problem for the industry and does good for the communities. And, you know, that's something I'm seriously considered and get involved in why because the industry has this particular problem i know i'm being vague but uh, but conceptually has this particular problem and it also has a huge positive community effect it created a lot of goodwill for our clients 
in their communities. They'll be solving an issue for themselves and, and, and providing value. And this company knows how to do that. It's not something I would ever do on my own, but that's the place where I feel comfortable and excited about potentially leveraging my access because it really is, you know, is, is solving a big problem for the industry. Absolutely. That's, uh, like I said, keep expanding capabilities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, good stuff. Um, so uh, I want to give you an opportunity to give people, you know, contact information to reach out. I, I have a last question, but any other, any other final thoughts before we go there that uh, come to mind before I, uh, you tell people where they can find out more about you? I don't know. Leadership's always the big thing, I think, yeah. that we tend to forget about. But ultimately, it just takes strong leadership to drive m It's the largest magnitude of change management organization gets. So <laughs> it comes from both sides. If you can really spend the time to identify leadership in the other company. Um, I think with the leadership, too, it's just more of a that servient leader, that somebody that's more empathetic, that can really spend the time to listen first. You know, some of the hard charging top down, I, I think the other bottoms up approach really works well with the magnitude change management. When we talk about people getting frustrated and yeah, if you tell people what to do, they, nobody wants to be told what to do. And if you can put away your agenda for at least a moment, uh, get down to a level where you can assume you don't know anything or what you know is wrong and intentively listen and understand the other person, how they're thinking, how they feel, why they feel that way, uh, what are their goals, what are their challenges, and you align yourself to help them achieve those things, overcome those challenges, then, you know, people tend to be much more receptive to you, yeah. your thoughts and ideas. But I think that's a, that just a good leader can do a lot and create a lot of value. And that's ultimately what's instrumental in making M&A successful. Yeah, no, I, I, 100%. And I, and I love the way you said you know, in terms of change management, like M&A is the biggest, right? The biggest thing that triggers jam, and it's really true, right? Because there's almost, you know, there's almost nothing else I can think of that at least happens intentionally um, that, uh, you know, that creates that level of change that's necessary to be successful. So that's a great point. So if people want to find out more about the various things you do, uh, you know, I'm sure they can find, well, what's the name of the podcast? Let's, let's stop, stop there. <laughs> sure, the podcast is called M&A Science. We have a website that we consolidate our, our different um, resources and so right. forth. It's mascience.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. Just Kisan, K-I-S-O-N Patel. All right. So Kisan Patel, mascience.com. You'll find everything there, folks. So Kisan, my final question on the, on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people around the world from oppression to the reason I've been an entrepreneur and haven't worked for somebody for three decades. Um, so what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? And freedom is the greatest asset that we have that we undervalue. You know, if we understood the value of our freedom, we would be maximizing it every day from the moment we get up. We would internalize it. We would put forth this discipline to maximize it and achieve every possible opportunity that we have gifted to us from that anything that we could possibly dream to achieve. You know, that's the greatest, most valuable, undervalued asset that every human has is freedom. That's what freedom means to me. Wow, I love it. I love the passion behind that response. You and I obviously feel <laughs> very, very passionate about that word. That's why I ask about it. Uh, Kisan Patel, thank you for being such an amazing guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Hey, my pleasure, Corey. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. 
I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.